0: Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Welcome to episode 11 of Podcast for Humans. Merry Christmas, if that's what you're into on this Tuesday. So today we have something a little different. We have Annie LaCroix, um, and she's going to introduce herself. Uh, and this is actually outtakes from uh, an interview that I did on her podcast. So the first piece you're going to hear is Annie introducing herself, and she actually called into the phone line of the podcast um, because we forgot to do that in uh, on her podcast. So you'll hear the audio shift a little bit. But I hope you enjoy the time that we spent together. I know I did.
1: Hi, I'm Annie LaCroix, and I am a small business owner in Wenatchee, Washington. My business is a massage school, a very small boutique size school. In addition to that, I am a small business consultant for primarily massage therapists, but also other businesses that are interested in consulting. And finally, I have Brainy Boss podcast, which is a podcast focused on productivity for entrepreneurs. You can find... Me on Twitter at AbrainyBoss or on Instagram at AbrainyBoss. and I think that's it. Hello, Rowan. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Great. Hey, I was excited to talk to you for a couple reasons. Um, one, you're, obviously you're a psychotherapist, which I'm going to have you talk about in a second because I guess that isn't obvious too. My listeners yet, but also the Brainy Boss podcast focuses a lot on productivity. And I know that sometimes the way we get into our heads and the way we talk to ourselves and all that stuff can really affect our productivity. So I was interested in having you kind of marry those two things together um, mm-hmm. in terms of how we can, some, maybe some ways that we can deal with that. I think when we do when we're in business, it's very easy to say, okay, I need to um, buy this software. I need to invest in this tool. I need to get a business consultant. They need whatever it is. And I think sometimes business owners don't think about getting counseling or psychotherapy or investing in that because, um, right. Yeah. And I don't know. I I think there are a lot of reasons why people do that. I think there's some thought, well, if I, if I'm going to get counseling, it's, just confirming that something's wrong with me rather than we should probably all be in counseling. Right. So how do right. you, have you, have you seen a lot of that? Have you seen people resistant to being in counseling for whatever reason? Absolutely.
0: You know, I have clients that um, have told me that they feel like when they need to come in, they feel like a failure. They've, you know, so, so for instance, you know, if there's somebody that I've been working with for a while and um, they've gotten to a place where they're doing better than they were. And so we've, kind of scaled back our sessions and then if they need to reach out and come back in they feel like well i couldn't do it on my own or i failed um and i kind of equate it to like going to the gym you know where you have to you have to keep working on whatever the muscles are that you're that you're looking at building and if you stop doing that for a while those muscles are going to atrophy and you're gonna have to kind of start from from scratch again so there is this, there's a stigma around going to therapy for some people that's changing and it's been changing for decades now, but it's still in place for some people where they feel like they, they're flawed or they're damaged and that's why they have to go to someone to get fixed. Um, and that's really not what therapy is about for the most part. It's really, it's more about kind of coaching um, in a lot of ways. And it's all another branch of, you know, life coaching and that kind of thing. But um, I think that if people could see it more as building skill sets, which is really what we do in therapy, um, it might have a different vibe to them than, oh my God, I'm broken and now I need to come in. And also part of that is that by the time they come to me, they're usually in a crisis place. Most people don't, they're not proactive with their mental health generally. Um, and and we can get into that a little bit. You mentioned mindfulness and that kind of thing. Um But I think by the time people make that initial call, things have started to really, they're in kind of a high-speed wobble. Things have started to unravel in a pretty big way. So you have to kind of build back up to more of a maintenance place with it.
1: Yeah, we're not, I don't think, I think just in general, we aren't very good at preventative stuff. I think that's true for counseling. And I also think it's true for getting, like a business consultant. It's something, I've said this before in um, other podcasts, but I, I waited way too long to get a business consultant, right? And I waited till I needed one rather than saying, why wouldn't I have a business consultant from the beginning? And I think exactly. counseling and coaching can be the same thing because we are we are flawed and that's okay. And I think getting the tools to work with our weaknesses and work with our strengths and be, have an awareness of those is is essential rather than saying we have to be perfect at everything being able to identify this is where I'm not super good. And so what tools can I build to mitigate that?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I had a, a, a bread bakery for a, while, a couple of them. Uh, my second one was an absolute train wreck. Uh, and by the time I called the business consultant, he said, you know, I'm not going to even take you on because you're already done. Like you don't know it yet, but you're just done. And oh. I'm not going to take your last couple of thousand bucks and, you know, be on my way when I know that your business is is dead. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, that's valuable information <laughs> to have. And he was right. And now, you know, in retrospect, I know everything I did wrong. But if I had brought him in at the beginning, right. I wouldn't have made, you know, maybe any of those mistakes, but certainly I would have made a lot fewer and, and you're right. I think, you know, that preventative piece, it's important. And it's, it's something that especially I think in the business world, people don't tend to put as much weight on. So I mean, you and I both went to massage school, you, were, you own a massage school. So you know how much weight we put on self care, and making sure that you're taking care of yourself, both physically and emotionally, so that you can show up for your clients the best way possible. People in business school don't get that, at least not in this country. For sure. So that builds this stigma of like, oh, you know, you know, you need to go to therapy, or you need, you know, do yoga, or whatever you need to do. And it's sort of this teasing thing, um, where instead it's, you know, I'm just going to go home and drink, you know, three bourbons and hope things are better in the morning. Kind of, you know, right. Which, you know, sometimes that works for you know a short period of time, but um, sometimes it doesn't. So. Um, yeah. So you brought up mindfulness and I think it's worth talking about that for a minute um, because one of the things that I work a lot with, um, with my clients is destigmatizing the idea of mindfulness and um, taking it out of this sort of healy feely realm where you have to like, like candles and have, you know, little tinkly sounds. And, you know, it's like that, that's not, necessary. That's certainly one way to be mindful and have a meditation practice, but there's lots of different ways to do that. Um, I'm really glad.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I have been somebody that really resisted it for, I just, the word meditation kind of made me, yeah, I'm not doing that for a long time to, and it just, it just didn't, resonate with me I just said I'm not that person who can be still I'm just not that type of person and when I switched it to mindfulness which what for whatever reason that word switch works better for me when I switched Mm -hmm. it to mindfulness and then of course the research around it reading the research around it and how mindfulness increases productivity then I finally woke up to how important it is to have a practice so continue on
0: yeah no, exactly. And um, I mean, I guess there's a couple of different things I want to touch on. Um, there's this thing in Japan that came on in the eighties um, called forest bathing. <laughs> and it's like a prescribed part of their healthcare system. Now it's basically just go for a freaking walk in the woods. You know, like you're stressed out, you, you know, you live in downtown Tokyo or whatever, you're surrounded by you know millions of people and you need to get into the woods and chill the fuck out. And when right. you come back, you're going to be more productive and more like just able to do your thing. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, a lot of people are turned off by that idea of, you know, meditation looks a certain way and sounds a certain way and it's way too, you know, weird for me and I'm never going to do that. But if you just think about it as giving yourself 10 minutes a day to just be where you're at. And part of that process is to recognize that for those 10 minutes, you have everything you need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, when we get stressed, it gets easier to fall back into that mindfulness place as a coping skill if you if you develop it over time um so if we know that for those ten minutes earlier in the day we recognize that we were actually okay and our bodies actually felt into that experience because our bodies and our minds are really strongly connected, and a lot of people don't get that we kind of walk around with these like like that we're like head transport systems that are just, you know, like it's all about the brain and the body's not really all that important, but there's a strong connection there. And when we can teach our body what it feels like to actually be okay for 10 minutes to know that whatever happened in the past, whatever is going to happen later, if we can let go of that and just know that right now, this is all I need to do, then your body starts hooking into that and you actually start craving it like more and more and more and when we do get stressed sometimes we can take a minute and be like okay can i get back to some semblance of what that was and it can be it can be 10 minutes on a bus or a subway or you know wherever you are where you're just trying to arrive in that moment without evalu- evaluating or obsessing and it's hard and it's really hard and that's why it's called a practice people have a yoga practice or a meditation practice because it's not about mastery it's about That process and just trying to get there.
1: I think, yeah, yes. I I have so many things that I want to say about that because it really is a process. But when you, I just want to go back to, I can remember what it was like for me in the beginning of trying to do this mindfulness practice and having 10 minutes a day. I hear what you're saying that 10 minutes of knowing you're okay and 10 minutes of just being still or observing whatever you're observing. But I think we need to dig into that a little bit more because when I first started, it, it was ten minutes to fixate on all the stuff I wasn't doing, right? And so, if you're—I'm a very cerebral person, right? So I'm always in my head, and it's—it's it's a very, um, I, it's a very conscious decision for me to move into my body. And so, when I'm sitting there, still connecting mind and body, in the beginning when I first started this, I just all I could think about was this is time I wasn't using somewhere else. So can you talk about that? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really common. I think most of us do that when we first try to attempt something like this. Um, there's lots of different ways. So for me, I suck at meditation. I It doesn't really work for me if I just sit there and try to like, just follow your breath or, you know, like that. Oh, yeah. I need something else to do with my brain. And so for me, guided meditation stuff works a little bit better because it gives my brain something to do. So, um, there's a ton of apps. Most of them are free. Some of them are ridiculously cheesy and some of them aren't. And you just have to kind of see which ones you can get through without giggling or throwing your phone across the room.
1: Do you have um, a favorite by chance that off the top I,
0: of I don't actually, honestly, I don't do that. Most most of the time I come home and I smoke a bowl and drink a glass of wine and that's, you know, that's how I unplug. <laughs> and it's really not the best choice, but that's what I do. I'm just going to be totally honest about it.
1: (laughs) Well, no, I think I, I like that you said that because I think we need to understand that our time of stillness needs to be whatever works for us. Right. So if that glass of wine is mine too, right? Like I'm just going to sit, and I'm going to sip on this glass of wine. And I think that if you don't have a practice starting anywhere is better Mm -hmm. than saying, I have to start with the ultimate, you know, a chanting. I've removed myself from all conscious thought. There's that's not even possible. I don't think so.
0: I, like- I mean, certainly not without you know years and years and years of heavy practice. But I mean, for me, I, I'm lucky. To, excuse me, lucky enough to live in a a beautiful spot on top of a mountain, and so I can go out onto my back porch and just sit and look out for miles over the mountains. And so for me, that's how I decompress. You know, don't underestimate the power of sitting, just sitting outside after work for half an hour and just staring at the sky or the grass or whatever it is you're looking at. You know, it doesn't have to be all that complicated.
1: Okay, so yeah. thinking more about um, mindfulness meditation, whatever whatever we want to call it, how do you see that impacting um well, what do I want to say here? So let's say the narrative in my head, let's make up a person, the narrative in their head, they've got this imposter syndrome going pretty strong. What am I doing? Why am I here? Who put me in charge of these things? And then they decide to introduce mindfulness into their life. And so now they spend 10 minutes going, yeah, I suck. This is a bad idea, right? Does, I mean, I? I've been there not thankfully regularly, but I've been there and I'm sure other people have. So what would you say to somebody, which, which would be first to you, right? Are we dealing with imposter syndrome first? Are we dealing with mindfulness first? Is that a, a fraught way to say that? What would you say?
0: Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think it really does depend on the individual and what is going on for them and what, you know, specifically that they're struggling with. And you're right, if if their mindfulness practice is them sitting for 10 or 15 minutes thinking about, you know, how terrible they are at their job, then that's, they're doing it wrong. (laughs) That's not (laughs) not what that's supposed to look like. Um, And so there's a couple of different things we can do. I mean, I think um, there's some different therapeutic approaches that can be really effective for that sort of entrenched um, negative thought pattern or, you know, flawed thinking. Um, we call it cognitive distortion where you actually start believing things that are completely not true. Um, and so, and this goes along, I also want to kind of touch on self-sabotage. Um, because that's really what we're talking about. And it's so often, I think people, they hear that term and they think, Oh, it's like, you know, you walked into the office and told your boss to fuck off or you purposely tanked a project so you can get fired. But that's not really generally what self sabotage looks like it looks like self medicating it looks like procrastination it looks like taking on too much that you can't follow through with or self limiting thought patterns which is what we're talking about now and all of that stuff for the most part is rooted in low self esteem so to get back to the solutions like you know what do we do about this when we we find ourselves or someone else stuck in this um, cognitive behavioral therapy is really good for this kind of thing because it's it's all about challenging negative thought patterns. It's about reality checking the thoughts that you're having. And there's really good worksheets where, you know, they'll take you through a scenario where, you know, you screw up at work and your first thought is, well, I'm not good at this. I'm probably going to get fired. I should never have been hired in the first place. And it forces you to slow that process down. And so the worksheet would have maybe three or four, you know, give evidence to this thought. Okay. All right. Well, you think you're a screw up. You're terrible at your job. I I want you to list four pieces of evidence to support that idea. And then I want you to, to to list four or five pieces of evidence that, that fly in the face of that idea. And you kind of work your way through this and, you know, the worksheet might ask you, what's another way to, to look at this? Or will this even be important in a year or five years? So sometimes, especially for, you know, those kind of linear thinking people, this can be really effective because it's not, Oh, let's talk about your feelings and uh, you know, oh no, I think you're great. Let's let's hug, you know. It's about like, okay, you think that you're a piece of shit. Prove to me that you're a piece of shit. Prove to me that you're terrible at your job. If you can't prove to me that you're terrible at your job, then I'm going to challenge that thought. And what would it look like for you if that thought wasn't true?
1: Right. Yeah, the so data. Those, Looking at the data. Yeah, the, exactly. Prove your prove your hypothesis, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. And so once we get some clarity around whether or not those thoughts are distorted, we can start creating new thoughts and behaviors that are more in alignment with reality and that can help to kind of crush that that low self-esteem base that we're working off of.
1: I have a couple things that you said. I want two different things, so I'll come back to one in a second. But the first one is... Yeah. An exercise I take um, my students through or sometimes people that I'm consulting with through is kind of the worst case scenario where Mm -hmm. a student will say, well, I, I might fail the test. Okay. Well then what would happen? Exactly. Well, I'd fail the test. Okay. Then, then what would you do? Well, I guess I'd retake it. Okay. And then what would happen? Well, what if I fail it again? Well then what would you do? And generally speaking, when you take them all the way through that exercise at the end of the day, you, it's still not the worst thing, right? You're still alive and you're, you're here. And sometimes it, you realize that it's okay. It's really not going to be a big deal. Even if people say, well, I'm going to get fired. Okay. Then what happens? Then I get another job. Okay. And maybe you like it better. Yeah, I guess so. Right. right?
0: So that's, that's actually a CBT exercise. I don't know if you know that or not. But, oh, I didn't um, know that. <laughs> no, it, it really is. It's like, okay, you know, let's, let's keep going with that. Because what we do is we stop at the apex of the concern. So we, at the apex of the what if, you know, like, oh, what if I fail the test? And then we just stay in that place. What if I do that? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So when you force yourself to say, okay, yeah, you failed the test, then what happens next? And then after that, what happens? And after that, and so exactly what you said, and that is, that's directly from CBT, because it it's getting you to think all the way through and get out of that sort of wheel spinning at the apex of the worry. Mm-hmm. So it's fantastic. I love that exercise.
1: Yeah, I, I have found that it does work really well because they end up at, my students a lot of times into a better place where they go, oh, okay, well, I guess that, I guess it all works out, right? Um, right. I think... The other thing, and again, a, a little bit of a digression, but accepting that failure is necessary, right? And I, I think my biggest learning has come from my failures rather than my successes. But sometimes with students or younger people, that it's, I think a lot of it's just a life experience thing. But with students or younger people, is, um, it's always avoiding failure rather than accepting failure and making that into a learning transition to the next thing. Right. And so sometimes when it's changing that mindset that failure is a requirement mm. of being alive. <laughs> and-
0: Absolutely. And I think some of this is the fallout of, you know, that everybody gets a trophy thing, which oh, yeah. makes me nuts. <laughs> um, and I think that through that, you know, if you're not allowed to fail, then you don't know that it's okay to fail. You don't know that almost everybody, like you know, I mean, if you're in a competition of some sort and everybody wins, then how are you supposed to come out with the idea that you are in this large pool of people that all didn't win and you're all still okay?
1: Right. We're gonna. I'm gonna have you back sometime. We're gonna have an entire episode on no trophy for you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good. I love that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, because I, yeah. I, I, mean, I can. I can talk about that one for a long time.
0: Yeah, I don't think that we've done our our children or or that generation any favors by you know trying to um, protect them from those feelings of like oh I didn't win you know right um, and I think you're right I think we learn through our failures you know so you know when my bakery went down I had one, one of um, one of my regular customers who was a kind of corporate successful guy. And he comes in and I told him what was going on. He said, well, you just earned your street MBA.
1: Right. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: I bet you could tell me everything that you did wrong now. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, well, that was really valuable and it cost you a lot of money, but you, you did it. And now the next thing you do, you're not going to make those same mistakes. You're going to make other ones, but you won't make those again.
1: Exactly. When I've um, failed at something that has cost me money, I always call it tuition. I say, well, exactly. that was the tuition for that education I that. that I got, and it's it's just more helpful to think of it as tuition rather than money lost. So
0: exactly, and it is valuable, and I think that there's a massive value to the lessons we learn through failure, for sure.
1: Really, I really think that's true. I think that I know for me personally, I think most people can agree with this: is my failures were just such bigger learning experiences, and a lot of it was based on that I didn't want to f- do that again and so mm-hmm. it's only a problem if you keep repeating it right but if you learn from it and you get better then it's a win win so
0: okay it, it is as long as you don't um let those failures kind of inform you as to who you are and that's you know so back to kind of my realm of of the the psychology piece when we fail and we internalize that as i am no good rather than I did this thing not very well, <laughs> you right. know. It's kind of like that difference between guilt and shame that Brene Brown talks about, where mm-hmm. you know, guilt is I did something bad, and shame is I am bad. And so, when you start internalizing your failures as as that you are a failure in essence at your core, that's when the psychological problems can really start happening.
1: Right. That's a good distinction that car- compartmentalizing. You do have to have a certain amount of compartmentalizing to allow you to say, this is just an event that I was part of rather than it, than my identity. And I'm going to carry this with me forever as something that, um, you know, is this cone of shame that (laughs) I'm walking around the house with. Okay. So totally unrelated, but I just like to get to know people a little bit differently Aside from your business, what is something that you are secretly or maybe not so secretly great at?
0: (laughs) I make a great chicken stock.
1: (laughs) I like it. That's good. That's a good one. Everybody needs to make a good stock, right?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know if everybody does, but you should have somebody in your community that does so that you can get it from them.
1: That's right. I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I know we're going to talk again in the future and I, I look forward to it.
0: Me too. Thanks, Annie. So that about wraps it up here for episode 11 of therapy for humans. And I hope you enjoyed our time with Annie Lacroix, and I hope you got something out of it. I know that I did. And um, hopefully we'll have some more guests on the show. If you're interested in being on the show, if you feel like you have something you want to chat with me about, then, um, Get in touch and we'll figure it out. And until next week, take care of yourself and take care of each other.